Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. Sitting here next to me is Matt Myers, MLB.com national editor. Matt, welcome to the first show of 2017. I'm Hi. psyched. Are you? Uh, sure, we're not. Yeah, right. I'm, I Listen, we had a nice long break, and I'm excited to get back to the show. Uh, so we have a couple of interesting things we're going to talk about today. The first thing is, you know, we asked uh, on Twitter earlier today, you know, did people have any questions? Right? And I got some good good questions. But what I thought was interesting is I got at least four versions of the exact same question. So thank you to Will, Bud, uh, Rio, and Rob, who all asked a variation of the exact same question, which is, what's the next metric for 2017, right? Like, what cool thing are we going to come up with that's like the next, you know, spin rate or something like that? And even spin rate is more of a measurement than a metric. Um, so I thought that was great. So we're going to answer that question first, and then we've got some other questions at the end of the day. The first thing we're going to talk about is like what's most interesting? Expected outcomes, right? And that's that's really cool. And let me explain what I mean by that for a second. Uh, you know, let's talk about what happens when a pitcher allows a, a ball in play. Now, the, what happens after that is not entirely in his control. You know, his defense could make the catch or not based on if they're skilled or positioned right. You know, the, the dimensions of the ballpark could have an effect. Just dumb batted ball luck could have an effect. We know the pitcher controls that a little bit, but we don't know how much, right? And that's kind of what we're getting to now is this expected outcome based on what did he allow the ball to be hit at in terms of exit velocity? And what angle did he allow it to be hit at? I mean, that that tells you a lot. And you can kind of take those two numbers, forget what actually happens, because that's not his control, and just take those two numbers and say, well, here's what that type of batted ball, here's the expected outcome on that across baseball. Right? Does that make sense so far? Yeah, and we, I mean, we've, we've done some of that already on a very basic level. You know, the, the famous example from the postseason was the Andre Ethier home right. run, where it was – you know, based on giant air quotes, home yeah, run. yeah. All <laughs> um, yeah. right, hit when there was the only ball, like there had been forty similar batted balls all year. They had all been outs. I think it was it was one for forty-two, but the one was like the left fielder lost it in the sun. Yes, and this one because of the wind and the home what, run. and it went over the fence uh, in the in the NLCS. Right. So that's sort of the example. And then during it was a a bit of a narrative point, you know, that we used uh, during the postseason in particular, sort of used the basic kind of like combos of launch angles and exit velocity to kind of tell a story of the likelihood or unlikelihood of a certain ball being a hit. Now, of course, Tom Tang with Tom Tango now working here, he's kind of taking it to a new level. Yeah, basically everything we're about to talk about is Tom's good work, right? So uh, credit where it's due. And what this is is very similar to what you talked about, but it's kind of taking it the next step. And uh, there's two reasons for that. One is that before, like what you were talking about, that was really just batting average, right? Well, batting average is flawed for a million different ways. So what we're going to use here is uh, weighted on base average. And if you don't know what that means, it's basically very similar to on-base percentage. It's just that every time on base is not weighted equally like it is. So a single is worth less than a double. It's worth less than a triple. It's worth less than a home run. So you get more credit for you know better ways of getting a base. I think that makes a ton of sense. And uh, the other way is because these are – I think that we had a very like – uh, like strict and rigid sort of like, well, it's this one degree and this one mile per hour, what happened exactly then? Tom did a really good job of kind of smoothing this all out. So, it, you know, a lot more data gets pulled into it, which makes a lot more sense. And one more point about weight on base average is that it's also, to be clear, it's scaled to be similar to OBP, so that like 400 is, you know, elite. Right. So that's that's yeah. a great point. So the major league average for, uh, for weighted on base average, and let's be clear, weighted on base average on batted ball contact. We're only caring about balls in play. Strikeouts and walks are not really part of this. Obviously, that matters to the hitter, but that's a separate conversation. So the major league average uh, in 2016 was 363, which that makes sense, right? I mean, that's a pretty good batting average. It's a pretty good on-base percentage. Uh, and that's, you're right, the way this is scaled, it's not some number that you know we have no context for. Or, like We're not used to using 363 is the average. Um, so I thought that that's, that's interesting. And what we can do is we can look at both pitchers and hitters, and we can say, okay, based on the types of batted balls you allowed, who had the highest or lowest 
expected average, like what quote unquote should have happened. Um, and then from there, you can even go a step further and say, well, why didn't that happen? You know, who got lucky or unlucky or helped by their defense or hurt by the ballpark or a million different things we're going to get to. So uh, I think, you know, we'll get we'll get to the, the leaders because I think that's really interesting. And then we'll explain a little bit about how we got there. So we looked at 404 pitchers who had at least 100 balls in play this year. All right. And uh, the lowest expected WOBA weighted on base average. I thought this was really fascinating. 307 Stephen Wright. Knuckleballer Stephen Wright. But I think this actually this this makes a, a lot of sense to me because I remember when uh, I guess it was probably like you know 2001 or so when the original like uh, dips theory, dips with, theory. It came out, uh, Voris McCracken sort of famously you know reve- uh, revealed or discovered I guess that you know bad pitchers have at the time like he basically said have no impact on balls in play. We've sort of learned that's not exactly true, but he definitely re- discovered that pitchers had less control on balls in play than we realize and now it's sort of we've sort of been peeling that onion for a while but the point I'm making is in one of the first steps people realize like well maybe this doesn't really apply to knuckleballers where like like they were they break everything they, they break everything <laughs> and so seeing Stephen right at the top of the list it sort of like jives perfectly with that yeah so if you look at the top 10 starters who have the lowest expected average basically induce the, the expected woba uh, excuse me wait on a base average who who induced like the the kind of batted ball contact that's likely to lead to the lowest amount of damage. There's some huge names on this top 10 list. Clayton Kershaw's on this list. Uh, Jake Arrieta's on this list. Rich Hill is on this list. And that sets aside their skill in, in strikeouts as well. It just terms, it, it kind of goes to show like these are why these guys are so great because they get strikeouts and they don't allow hard contact. Um, some of the other names are really interesting. The second guy on the list, the guy, the starting pitcher who has the second lowest expected uh, weighted on base average is Kyle Hendricks. I think that's really cool because we talked a lot this year about, you know, why was Kyle Hendricks' ERA so low? Was it because he uh, wasn't striking a ton of guys out? Was it because he was inducing weak contact? Or was it because the Cubs' defense was so really, really good? Answer, I think it was both to some extent. But, you know, if you look at this, this kind of goes to, well, that's actually maybe a little more credit due to Kyle Hendricks than we for sure, thought. For sure. I mean, because that's really impressive. Um, you know, Tyler Anderson is a guy we've talked about a couple of times in Coors Field. That's a great place to induce weak contact. You don't want to be allowing barrels in Coors Field. He shows up on the list. And uh, I think the name that stands out to me the most, CeCe Sabathia, right? CeCe Sabathia has kind of been viewed as over the hill for a couple of years. It's, theirs might still he, be something he, he there. Did have a little, he did have a little bit of renaissance this year. So uh, at least in terms of he had a, a couple of really good stretches of performance. So um there should be maybe a little more optimism that he can be a little a bit, bit of value to the Yankees. Yeah, so just to reset, we said the uh, Major League average was 363. These top 10 guys we're talking about, the range is from uh, 307 to 330. So obviously all above average. The range for our entire spread of 404 pitchers uh, goes for, uh, from 244, and that's a reliever we'll talk about in a second, all the way up to a 458. There's no way around it. Chris Young had a really atrocious season for Kansas City. Um, so I thought that was cool. What's really interesting now is if you look at the relievers now, unsurprisingly, all of our top 10 relievers had a lower expected on base average than any single starting pitcher because they're like these one inning guys who come out and throw heat. What's funny to me is if you look at the starters, the gap between number one and number two is from 307 to 308. It's almost nothing. And then the gap to number four is 316, very little. The gap between the number one reliever, at, which is at 244, and the number two reliever, which is 279, <laughs> that's enormous. That's a 35 point gap. Who do you think the number one reliever is? 
Um, well, I'm looking at it now, it's but it, it doesn't surprise me. No, I think one of the reasons you won't see, for example, Aroldis Chapman on this list is, again, we're not talking about strikeouts or walks. It's just quality of bat at ball contact. Now, we know Zach Britton throws that insane sinker. We know he gets unbelievable amounts of, of weekly hit ground balls. I mean, that's the Zach Britton story. You can't square him up. And that's I mean, and it's interesting because number two on that list, although he's a righty, is a very similar repertoire. He's Jerry Familia, same kind of thing. It's like throwing a sinker, you know, 97 miles an hour. Right. And so they, unlike a lot of the more traditional closers who rely on strikeouts, although these guys do strike people out, it's much more about really weak, so- soft ground balls. Yeah, it, this top 10 list is interesting because you got a couple of really top-level closers, Britton, Familia, uh, Kenley Jansen shows up, a couple of just, you know, sinker ball righties, Matt Bowman and Blake Trinan, and uh, a couple of, you know, these these lefties, like Adam Liberatore, Mark Zabzinski, uh, Zach Duke. It's interesting. You know, they might not be guys who stand out to you as being very good, uh, but you know, maybe they're not striking guys out. Maybe they walk too many. But when hitters put the ball in play, they, they're just not getting that much out of it. And also, I mean, for example, a guy like Archinsky, he's facing mostly left. He's, he's put in position to it's succeed. exactly right. <laughs> and I think, we you know, when we talk about, like, shifting and outfield positioning, just putting your guys in position to succeed – to me, that's like the number one thing a manager can do above all else is just put your guys in a spot where they're most likely to do well. And the most extreme example of that is basically Lugie, lefty reliever, lefty specialist to come in basically to face one lefty and get out of the game. Right. <laughs> um, so anyway, that's that's cool. And then, you know, what we can do from that is we're already working on as well. Who had the biggest difference between expected and actual, right? And you can see there's a big gap here. We'll say, well... What happened to that guy? You know, we already looked at this a little bit. Maybe we'll talk about it next week. Uh, Houston Astros pitchers really get hurt a lot by that ballpark more than you might think. And, uh, you know, there's some guys who really got lucky, including, we're not going to give it away yet, someone we've talked about on the show like 75 million times is number one on this list. Maybe we'll talk about this next week. I think he might actually have even been a guest on the show. Oh, he was absolutely a guest <laughs> on this show. You probably don't have to think too hard about who we're talking about. Uh, it, it has nothing to do with spin rate. I promise you that. So you can do the same thing for hitters, right? And we've kind of talked, you know, people have known this in baseball forever. Sometimes you go up and you crush a line drive and it's an out and you can hit a dinky little bloop and it's a double. You know, is that skill? Is that luck? Is that defense? Even if you hit the line drive out, I feel like you've done your job as the hitter, regardless of what you get credit for. So we looked at this, the hitters with the highest expected weighted on base average. There's some really big superstars on this list. Miguel Cabrera is number one on the list. Completely unsurprising to me. He is fantastic. He's elite. He's one of the 10 best right-handed hitters to ever live. Uh, Gary Sanchez is on the list. Not surprising. He was red hot for two months. I was surprised to see Freddie Freeman number two on the list. He made a really good year last year. I mean, he had he had a great year. A really good year. <laughs> but number two, like, that, that was surprising to me, I think. Uh, you know, some of the other names on the list, Nelson Cruz, and okay, no, no surprise, J.D. Martinez, Trevor Story, Chris Carter shows up on the list. Now, obviously, I need to reiterate, we are not talking about strikeouts here. We're just talking about what happens when you make contact. But what this says to me is that when Chris Carter puts bat to ball, it, really good things happen, more so than most every other hitter of baseball. Still a free agent. Still as good as Mark Trumbo. Nobody <laughs> overpay him. <laughs> um, and so the spread here, Miguel Cabrera, uh, 514. You know, Freddie Freeman, 508. Mike Trout makes the list, number 10 at 488. Uh, so the spread goes from 514, Miguel Cabrera, all the way at the bottom, 234. I mean, that's almost a 300-point difference. That's Billy Burns, you know, D. Gordon, 236. A lot of these, like, speed guys uh, who, who probably play up over that because they're running out. Basically, oh, it's sure, turning singles sure. to doubles. You know, speed is a big part of, of slugging percentage. If you think about it, right, it's not always power. If you turn a double into a triple, that's a speed play. So I, I think it's interesting because, you know, it, it's almost like what actually happened is important in terms of winning that individual game. But it's not that important in terms of projecting what might happen in the future or For what sure. a guy actually deserved. Yeah, and I mean, like, it, this is—I mean, this is certainly going to be have huge utility for 
fantasy players. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's absolutely. Like, it's basically like a, another level of, of BABIP, like a more nuanced level of BABIP. And so you like you look at these lists and suddenly, you know, you start to see, you know, I'm I'm already looking, you know, you, you look at the lists, I'm looking at the starting pitcher list and I see Robert Gazelman on the list. So sort of like already a fantasy sleeper, right? You know, Went right to the Met. Yeah. <laughs> already a fantasy sleeper. Tyler Anderson we've already talked about, but like Carlos Martinez is on that. So we already know he's kind of dominant, but maybe he's actually about to be a top five pitcher and we don't even like, you know, yeah, I mean, step two of this, it will be rolling in, you know, contact percentage. For sure. Because obviously that's a skill. It doesn't matter what happens if you're not putting bat to ball. But I think this is but, a good but, but that's, I mean, that's the reason I mentioned Gazelle and Martinez. These are the guys who actually do stri- had good strikeout rates. So you combine good strikeout rates with the ability to induce weak contact, and suddenly you're looking at, you know, maybe pitchers who are even better than we realize. Right. Um, Tyler Anderson, obviously, Coors Field is always going to be a factor. But you see that, and it makes you realize, okay, this is a guy that maybe can succeed long-term. If this is a skill – who can succeed long term and long in, in uh, course field? Because that's the idea, right? Because BABIP was really just a luck, pure luck, right? That was the idea because it didn't factor in the quality of the batted balls. Right here, we're we're we're, we're factoring those in. Well, so you made a great point there. So to kind of build on the original question is like, what what metrics do you want to see going forward next year? So expected outcome, yeah, I think these are great. We'll be able to have leaderboards of this. But um, what's really interesting to me is we have uh, Tom himself years ago created FIP, which we use FIP constantly. And it's an ERA estimator, and it's just based on the three true outcomes, you know, strikeouts, walks, and home runs. But what it does not include at all is quality of batted ball contact, right? Because it just, it couldn't have. So what I think is really interesting is if we can take this and kind of roll that in there, you know, a FIP version two or whatever it'll be called with batted ball contact, I think that'll be a huge next step forward. Yeah, and I have to, I have to imagine this is something that probably clubs have been doing with with StatCast and TrackMan data for, you know, probably a couple of years now is like, that's probably, I, I can only guess, I can only assume not with, without having full knowledge of what goes on, but I have to imagine that those, these clubs with big analytics teams, that's sort of what's. Yeah, I, I think you're, I don't, I don't always think clubs make the right choices in terms of players, but I do always think they have more information <laughs> than, than people think they do. That's a well, well said. <laughs> well said is right. Um, so let's go back to some other questions. I actually, we, we can go through all, you know, we've got this, uh, a lot of different kind of batted ball types. But, uh, you know, I'm thinking about it. You're going to be on vacation. I'm going to make Tom come on and explain all this to everybody because he'll be very interested in talking about that. But a, a brief preview of what we're talking about. We've already identified barrels. Barrels are great, but there's like five or six other types of batted balls. You can pop it up. You can hit it into the ground. Uh, and we can really identify these skills. So let's get back to some other questions. I like this one a lot. How do you think StatCast will inform the draft going forward? I think that's cool. I think it already – I mean, it already is. Right. You know, we – there's um... – on a very like basic level, there are certain showcases, um, like the area code games for one, who've had uh, at least TrackMan, which is sort of the radar component of uh, StatCast, uh, implemented. So teams could see things like exit velocity off the bat in the games and the in batting practice. Um, so that's there's already been that a little bit that, that that's out there. Yeah, and we know that for certain because uh, our friend Darren Sutton, who, who's very involved in you know amateur baseball uh, and did the MLB Plus games with us, with the perfect game all American uh, stuff. They have the, they have Statcast or, or Trackman at least installed in those parks, and I know that they're using it. But what I like about it is a lot of the stuff you don't need a huge sample size of seeing a player to know what they are, right? Like if you if you see a guy pitching. You don't need 100 pitches to know if he throws 85 or 95, right? It's kind of the same thing for spin rate. Now you think about something like batting average or whatever, you do need like a huge amount of plate appearances to know what a guy might be. But if you see a guy has a very high spin rate, you'll know pretty much right away. You don't need to see a ton of pitches. And I think that's cool. That's an interesting metric that goes into the scouting report. And this is something we've talked about, you know, with the uh, Lucas Giolito being like the, the the prime example right now where we're, we know that he, on his fastball, he has pretty average spin rate and that this may be – 
maybe, possibly, you know, a reason why he doesn't live up to the the hype that he's had. Right. And so it could be a thing where teams now are, are seeing, you know, high school pitchers who throw 98 with average spin rate and maybe are less impressed by the velocity than maybe they would have been 10 years ago. Because it's cool because it's, it's a skill you can't fake. Like, you might go up and hit a home run. And that's great, but you might not know, well, was it a meatball? Was it a terrible pitch that anybody should have hit out? You know, if you have an extremely high spin curveball, then you're going to know that right away, and you can't fake it. Yeah. Like, it's, you either have that or you don't, and that's a great way to identify And it. then there are maybe clubs that think that they can teach it. as Maybe they think that, you know, a high spin curve can be taught, or maybe they can teach a way to add more, you know, essentially life, because I think that a lot of time what we called life for years was basically like, a high spin, right? <laughs> a high spin fastball. <laughs> um, I think they they can teach it whether they, it's an adjustment to the grip or the arm action or whatever. So they may say, okay, well he's got the velocity, we can work with this and kind of maybe make the most out of it. Yeah. So I thought that was a great question. Uh, that was uh, from Stan. Thanks, Stan. Uh, Corey had a question: Is there a way to track average arm strength or speed or physical attributes as a baseline? Uh, per position example, the average shortstop has, you know, this average arm. Uh, and I say, yeah, I think we've done that a little bit already. Uh, something like that's always a little tricky just because you don't care about every single throw, right? Like we go back to kind of our competitive throws. Like who cares about the simple lob? You want to know what happened when they actually tried to put some mustard onto it. So I think Danny Espinosa had the uh, best shortstop arm this past year. Yeah. But Ian Desmond the year before, because I guess Washington just collects those kind of guys. Yeah. Uh, so maybe it'll be Trey Turner next year. But, yeah, I, I think that's something we can do. I don't know if we've actually kind of published that per position, but maybe we ought to. It's it's definitely – it's one of those tricky tricky things, too, because, you know, as you said, there are not nearly as many – like, once you actually start looking at the, the plays, there are not nearly as many plays in a season where a player has to throw the ball as hard as they right. possibly can that you, that, um, that you can really identify. Because not to mention the fact that a lot of times – they're not in a position to actually, particularly infielders, are not in a position to set their feet and throw as hard as they can. Because that's the other thing. is like on tough plays, usually what happens is they're throwing off balance. Yeah. If so you don't actually get a great sense. And on routine plays, well, they don't – the plays when they actually can set their feet, they don't actually need to really throw it as hard as they possibly it's, can. It's a lot harder than you'd think to figure out which plays to actually measure. And, you know, usually you don't want to say, well, I'm just going to ignore data. Maybe you would just, like, weight it less. But I think in this case – Sometimes you don't want that data in there. Like if you're a, a right fielder and you catch a fly ball with nobody on base and you lob it back in at 40 miles an hour, who cares? Like it, it actually muddies the waters rather than helping. Yeah, I mean, like for example, like when you think about it, the only time a shortstop ever really gets a chance to show off how hard they can absolutely throw the ball to first base is basically like a three hopper up the middle with like a pretty fast guy running. Especially yeah, if they're if they're coming in or they set their feet and they know they've really got to hustle because you know Billy Hamilton's running or whatever. And I think that's exactly what we saw on the hardest play of the year, the hardest throw of the year from a third baseman, Yadiel Rivera, uh, ninety-one point two miles an hour. Jose Altuve was running. Yeah. Like he had to make it happen. Yeah. So that's that's really one of the tricky points. Same thing with with outfielder throws, where it's like the amount of times where these conditions are right, we actually say, okay, this is like a clear example of a guy throwing as hard as he can. They're they're not as with with the right conditions where feet set etc. They're not as many as you think. Doesn't mean like it can't be done. It's just it's trick. It's one of those things that we that we thought would be easy that's actually turned out to be a lot trickier than we realized. It, it, you know, it, it seems like that's happened a lot, and that's yeah. partially just because of the way baseball is played. Like it's not everything is uh, at full speed. There's a lot of quirky things that happen. So the answer is yes. Uh, it just it acquires more explanation than I think you would think yeah. to show what the average is. Yeah. Uh, so thank you, Corey. Uh, Brian, this is a good one. I don't know that I have an answer for this one. Is there one metric that best predicts whether a player can effectively play different positions? I think it's a great question. I don't know if I have a good answer for that. No, I, <laughs> I don't think a, a single one. Um, it might be a combination of things, right? Like maybe, you know, first step or, or it, as we kind of get more granular, like movement in particular directions. Yeah. 
Um, but yeah, I, th I don't know if, if it would ever just be one thing. It's got to be like a, a combination of things. Because what we're learning is this kind of all goes, the numbers really uh, make for scouting reports. Mm -hmm. You know, a guy is good at this and this, but maybe not so good at this or moving in that direction or whatever. And I think if you take kind of the, uh, the, the, the whole of that, that'll tell you something. And like it. throwing arm always has to be part of it. So I feel like, you know, maybe it's like if you say except throwing arm, maybe we could. But I feel like throwing arm is always going to because it, it it sort of disqualifies you. A weak throwing arm disqualifies you from certain positions. Yeah, and I guess the one thing we're never really going to be able to quantify is uh, willingness, <laughs> right? Ben Zobris is happy to play all over. I'm sure there's a lot of guys who are like, don't bother me with that. I want to stay in the same spot every single for, day. For sure. Which is always going to make it difficult. Uh, we did have one more, uh, another question. Uh, who who was the faster runner, Superman or the Flash? Obviously, the, the answer is Superman. He can fly. I don't know why that's, that's even up for debate. Thank you for that question. And then um, we had uh, a question from Matt, not this Matt, a different Matt. Who's the fastest pitcher when on base? I assume that meant uh, as a base runner, it could have meant, you know, the fastest pitcher delivering home to mm -hmm. not get stolen on. Uh, and I guess the answer is I, I didn't look that up, so I don't know. <laughs> but it's an interesting question, I suppose. I believe we looked this up during the postseason, and don't quote me on this, but I think fastest first to home was – and which this is also a little bit flawed always because, like, as we know, sometimes you get a running John start. Reed. Was, uh, it, was it Bartolo Colon? No, but no. it was – I think it wasn't Matt. I think it was Stephen Matz. Stephen but I think, Matz. But I think it was the same – you know, again, I, we'd have to, this is another one that's hard to control the conditions for, first to home. Like, you know, sometimes a pitcher – if it's 3-2 count and the pitcher's yeah. – you know, the, I, he's not being held, the guy's at second base when he releases the ball. That reminds me. I, I wrote over the holiday about the most interesting uh, StatCast base running plays, and the fastest second to third – was like 1.2 seconds by Steven Piscotti, who is absolutely not the fastest player in baseball, but he wasn't being held on. And Johnny Cueto was pitching, and you know he's got his wiggle, and he takes forever to get rid of the ball. So by the time uh, the ball came out, Steven Piscotti was like 51 feet off the second base with a full head of steam already, because uh, I think it was like a full count with two outs, and of course he was running. So it just kind of goes back to like there's a lot of very simple questions that have really complicated answers, which is great because I think that makes it interesting. We got time. <laughs> we got time. Um, so, yeah, anyway, we're very excited about kind of the expected outcomes. Thank you for the questions. If you have any other questions you want us to answer, please feel free to tweet them to us, Mike underscore Petriello or MT Myers uh, over there. That's our show for this week. We'll be back next week. Oh, and if you're watching, uh, I guess in it, we're going to start the top 10 series. It's top 10 positional uh, where I'm going to make some choices and have fans of various teams yell at me very much. That'll be on MLB Network. That'll yeah. be on MLB Network uh, starting, I think, um, Sunday the 15th uh, for like eight weeks, two positions a week. So very excited about that. Uh, thanks for listening. That's our show. Catch you next week.